But we're in John chapter 2, verse 13 and 25. And I've entitled the sermon, not this ordinary miracle, because that was last week, but uncharacteristically Christ. Uncharacteristically Christ. Now, why in the world would I entitle a sermon uncharacteristically Christ? What does that even mean? Well, in our passage today, we see a side of Jesus that we rarely, if ever, think of. We think of Jesus as soft-spoken. We think of Jesus as tender-hearted. We even think of Jesus as almost just feminine. Because he just, he just loves us, right? But today, we see Jesus revealing the character of God as he always reveals the character of God, and yet we see Jesus angry, zealous, filled with fervor. Why? Well, we don't see Jesus just revealing the Rambo side of God. So we go, oh, God gets angry. But we see that Jesus in this passage this morning has a zeal and a fervor and a passion for the worship of God. That that Jesus, being God himself, cares about God's worship, cares about how you and I worship our Creator. And so we see that even though it's uncharacteristically Christ to us, if you put parentheses around the un, it is very much characteristically Christ. He's concerned with the things of God. He's concerned with worship. He's concerned with the glory of his Father. So let's read in John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. <laughs> the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is an interesting passage of Scripture. Theologian John Calvin said that our hearts are idle factories. Said it before, probably will end up saying it again. But we need to realize our hearts are idle factories. 
We worship how we want to worship. We worship who we want to worship. And we worship for reasons why we ourselves want to worship. We make idols out of everything. What we spend our time with, what we our time doing, what we spend our money on, what we think about, what we do, who's in our lives. We worship what we want to worship, how we want to worship, and why we want to worship. But friends, that's not true worship. That's not what God has called us to True worship is a surrendering of honor, a surrendering of worthiness to another. And for you and I, we are called as human beings to give God what is due Him. And that is His glory. We are to declare His worthiness. Now, in our passage today, I have to, I have to set the stage a little bit. I have to give you a perspective. Because this is, this is what's going on. There's continuity and there's discontinuity. Now, some of you say, well, what in the world is that? Well, continuity, continuous, or discontinuity, discontinuous. So some things change, some things do not change. So what's continuous in this passage is that you and I still deal with worship. We worship all sorts of things. Hopefully, you're here because you want to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's some discontinuity. There's some things that really in the year 2022, it just isn't the same. You see, Jesus was on earth. As he was walking on earth, he lived, and this took place around 28 AD. He walked into a temple that's not there anymore. He talked to people who aren't here anymore. He talked about things that you and I, we just don't do. And so you might be able to sit back and just say, well, this doesn't apply to me. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because this word has been handed to us through the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, for the ages, so that you and I might be able to learn about worship. And particularly, this passage is for believers. This passage as Jesus goes through, he's telling the Jewish people, he's telling the religious people to repent. So you and I, if you're here and you love Jesus, you proclaim Christ, this is for you. This is to inform your worship. Secondly, this passage for you and I is going to be applied not necessarily to a physical temple, not in, not in these terms. We have wood, bricks, mortar around here. It's not talking about our church house, our church building. This passage, as it informs us in worship, is going to be talking about you and I, the temples of God. You say, well, what do you mean, Chase? <laughs> well, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. And later on, the Apostle Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 
You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You, friends, if you belong to Jesus Christ, have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. You do not belong to yourself. Your worship, your lives, are meant to be lived for God, for the glory of Jesus. And we stand as temples in and of ourselves. That's what the Bible teaches us, that the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, those who Christ has bought with his blood. So with this in mind, we must realize that in our temples, as Christians, we have been made new. Now, some people in here have not been made new. And I was uh, mowing the lawn yesterday and listening to the old British pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Some of you need to listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He is uh, phenomenal. But as I was mowing, he brought up this illustration. There was an old Puritan at this point. He lived 400 years ago, and he wrote that... There's all these castles all over England. If you've ever been to Europe, you know that it's true for all, pretty much all of Europe. There's castles everywhere. Most of those castles are broken down. They're, they're just towers or crumbling towers and walls of, and, and just not even as glorious as what they used to be. There's thorns and thistles and, and nettles all throughout the castles. But the Puritan made note of this. He said... Most of these places have plaques, even back in his day, of this great family lived in this castle. This great person lived in this castle. And it's true today. I was over in Germany in 2015, and I got to see a few castles. And at those castles, there was plaques. One of the plaques that I saw in in a castle that was relatively in shape was a plaque that Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli had stayed the night in that castle. It's pretty cool. But those castles were a reminder that someone great used to live in them, but no longer. And for some of you, God had dwelled with you, and he dwells no longer. You see, man was created to have fellowship with God, to know Christ. And yet, for some of us, some of you, God no longer dwells with you because you have not known Jesus. But for those of us who have, those of us who have met Christ, God dwells in us. And it is in our minds and our hearts and our souls that we meet with the living God. We have communion. We have fellowship. We have a relationship with God himself. And so when we meet with God, friends, we are called to worship him. But oftentimes we fall short. Again, I mentioned how we spend our time, how we, how we spend our treasure, how we use our talents, what we think of. That reveals the true God of our hearts. Some of you, your true idols, your true God is sports. You think of sports all the time. I know I've been guilty of that before. Some of you, your, your idol is music. Some of you, your idol is money. Some of you, your idol is your family. Friends, we fill our hearts with idols and many of them, but what Jesus is concerned about is true worship from you. 
See, all of life is worship. Everything that you do is to be a life of worship for God if you are in Jesus Christ. We are always worshiping something, someone, and for some reason. And because of that, friends, the big idea of today's passage is how, who, and why you worship matters. How, who, and why you worship matters. So first, let's take our first main idea. How you worship matters. We're going to look at verses 13 through 17, and we're going to see Jesus' zeal for worship. So what's going on in this passage? Well, last week, we covered Jesus' first miracle, that he turned water into wine. Then his family returned with him to Capernaum for a time, and then they traveled south for a few days. They didn't travel north. Even though the passage says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It was always up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem not only was on a mountain, but the Jewish people thought that the whole world centered in Jerusalem. Why? Because the presence of the living God was in their temple. And so if God dwelled there, all the earth revolves around it, and so Jesus went up for the Passover. Now, what is the Passover? The Passover refers back to Exodus. The Passover, it refers back to the 10th plague. Now, you remember, Moses went to Pharaoh, and he said, let God's people go. And Pharaoh said, no, time and time and time again. And there was different plagues. The 10th plague was a plague on the firstborn, that God would himself come down and strike down the firstborn of every house in Egypt, with the one exception. The Jewish people were called to kill a lamb. And when they killed that lamb, they were to take its blood and they were to put it on the lintel of their door and on the doorpost on either side. And as they put the blood on the door, they were to sit ready eating that lamb as the Lord would pass over that house. Thus, we have the name Passover. Passover is incredibly important for the Jewish people. Not only is it their holiday, but the month that Passover happens is the beginning of their new year. And so in Jesus' day, there would have been Jewish uh, people from all over the world that would have come for the Passover. They say that Jerusalem itself, the city, would swell to even be close to 2 million people. That's a large group of people that are gathering for a specific purpose. And that purpose was to celebrate the blood of the Lamb. Now, what Jesus would have done with his family, he traveled with his brothers and sisters and, and their families and, and his mother Mary, and they would have traveled south. It would have taken them about three or five days. And, and as they were traveling for the Passover, they would have been singing psalms. They would have been singing the psalms of ascent. If you ever have wondered what that is, A-S-C-E-N-T-S. That's when they would ascend up to Jerusalem. They would go up to Jerusalem. They would be singing praises to God. And as they were going along, they would be met with more and more Jewish people gathering in Jerusalem. As they were gathering in Jerusalem, they needed to get a lamb for sacrifice. And so there would have been vendors that were along the road, and they would have said, hey, I, I, have, I have a lamb for sale. Now, that makes sense. If you were traveling from Rome, you would have traveled many, many, many miles and, and for maybe even months just to get to Jerusalem. You wouldn't have wanted to take a lamb with you the whole time, right? And so 
uh, it's kind of like when we go and travel to a certain place and you know, we have to be at a certain city at a certain time, we say, I'm not going to bring lunch. It's just more convenient for me to stop at Chick-fil-A along the way, right? Kind of something like that where you stop for fast food. But in this case, it's the sacrifice. We'll get our sacrifice when we get there. And so people would get a lamb or they would get doves or they would get oxen according to their wealth. Oxen being the, the richest people, lamb for middle class and, and doves or pigeons for the poorest people. They would buy their animal for their sacrifice. They would go into the temple and then there they would make a sacrifice for their sins, reminding them of that Passover, that it is the blood that keeps them safe. It's the blood that rescues them. So, we see in our passage, verse 13, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. And in verse 14, in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, what Jesus sees is what historians call the Bazaar of Annas. Annas was the high priest that the Romans installed right around a little after Jesus was born. Uh, Annas then was um, kicked out of office, but he still was the most powerful priest in his day. His sons became high priests, and he controlled them. And then his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who was the high priest when Jesus died, he controlled him as well, kind of as puppet governments. And Annas knew that people needed to bring in lambs and sacrifices for their, for their sins, to pay for their sins. And so Annas set up a monopoly. As you entered into this temple, he would say, oh, that lamb, which had to be approved by the priest, that lamb is not good enough, the one that you brought in. You have to buy one of ours. That, that dove is not good enough, you have to buy one of ours. That ox is not good enough, you have to buy one of ours. And so they were, they were having a, a barn, basically, a bazaar, and uh, not that it was bazaar, but it's, it's a marketplace right there in the temple. It's also called the Steps of Honest. So we're not completely unfamiliar with this passage, are we? You guys have read the Gospels before. You know that Jesus gets mad. In fact, in Matthew 21, 12 through 13, and Mark 11, 15 through 17, and Luke 19, 45 through 46, we read that Jesus not only did this one time, he did it twice. Now, some people want to say that this is the only time Jesus ever cleared out the temple, uh, but I don't think that's necessarily true, and here's why. Because the Gospel of John is different than the other synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, there's lots of stories in the Gospel of John that we don't have in the other Gospels. The other reason is this. We know that Jesus clears out the temple. The Jews are looking for a sign. They're looking for a Messiah. So if someone comes in and with such authority clears out the temple, they want to know more about this guy. And it's not until later in John chapter 5, verse 18, that they decide they want to kill Jesus. And then later on in Jesus' last week when he clears out the temple again, they say, that's it. We're taking care of this guy. Now, just imagine, if you will, as Jesus walks up to this temple, there's sheep, and, and you all, this is a group participation here. Kids, you might like this. What do sheep say? Oh, that was a good one over there. Sheep are buying. OK, 
Okay, so ox or cows, what, what are the cows doing? That was the lamest cow ever. <laughs> They're mooing. Birds are tweeting. There's money changers. And they're exchanging money. Because if you come from Rome, you have Roman money. If you come from Greece, you have Grecian money. And it needed to be uh, switched out. And Jesus comes up. And he sees something that is actually necessary. You know, we, we think that because it was a marketplace that it wasn't necessary, but that's actually not true. The, the people were supposed to have sacrifices. The people were supposed to pay a temple tax. So you needed money exchangers. So what's the big deal? Why is Jesus so mad? Well, in part because what these people are doing, the, the money exchangers and what the priests are doing, they're corrupt. You see, the, the temple tax, if you were a Jewish person back in the day, and let's say they made $50,000 in, in modern currency, the temple tax wasn't that much, but it, it, wasn't, it was enough. It was $315. Okay, that's not too bad. But these money exchangers, they would only take certain currency. They only took currency that was Jewish, or there was a country, a city just north of them named Tyre. And they would take that Tyrrhenian currency. Why? Well, some commentators think it's because all the other currency would have idols or, or Roman emperors on it, and, they, and they, didn't, they didn't want that in the temple. That's probably not the case, because the Tyrrhenian money had idols on it as well. These people wanted pure silver. And so uh, they, they get their money. But not only do they exchange the money, there was an exchange rate. Hey, welcome to Jerusalem. Where are you from? Rome. Okay, you're going to need to exchange your money for the temple tax. Okay, fair enough. You guys use different money than us. Okay, how much is the temple tax? $315. Okay, here you go. Here's my temple tax. Oh, but because you're exchanging with me, I need another $215. They took large, large portions. And that's what it would have come out to if you were making $50,000 today. It would have been $315 for the tax, and the exchange rate was $215 in addition to that. But it wasn't so much the corruptness, but what was going on and where it was going on. We know that this is in the temple. So the temple has the Holy of Holies. Only one person could go there, the, great, or the high priest. He's the only one who could go there. Then outside is the holy place, it's still enclosed, and the priests could go there. Outside of that was where the Jewish men could go. Outside of that is where the Jewish women could go. Then there was one more layer of the temple, and that was where the Gentiles could go. And it is in this part of the temple that the Jewish people are selling the sheep, selling the oxen, selling the doves, for exorbitant rates. Later on, in the second time, Jesus says, you are a den of thieves. There was one place at that time that Gentile people, anyone who wasn't Jewish, could come and visit God. 
They couldn't get any closer to the presence of God than that outer court. And these people who had traveled hundreds or even thousands of miles to get as close to God as possible, the place that they should have been worshiping, the place that they should have been able to worship the Lord is a marketplace. And it's completely contradictory to what the Lord says in Isaiah 56, 7, that his house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So what does Jesus do? I was talking to Brandon earlier on in the week, and I said, I need a table, like right here, I'm just going to hit it over. But I don't want to do that because I think I'd probably hit somebody. (laughs) We don't want to do that. But seeing things that were necessary, but lying, cheating, and in the wrong location. Jesus shows his zeal for worship. How we worship matters. And so Jesus comes in, and and there's some commentators that want to say, well, Jesus really didn't, like, make a real whip. He just grabbed, like, a stick and kind of said, go away. Go away. That did not happen. Jesus makes a whip, and with the authority that he says, this is my father's house, he takes the whip, and he whips the oxen out. He whips the sheep out. He overturns the tables. He says, get out of here. This is my father's house. With that zeal and loving his father, he says, worship matters. How you worship matters. He goes up to the pigeon sellers, the people who are supposed to be selling pigeons to the poorest people. They can't even afford anything else. It would cost like a penny for two pigeons. And yet they were charging way more. He says, get these out of here. And do you see what he says? I just said it, but did you see what he says? He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. That's the exclusivity of Jesus. He doesn't say, don't make our father's house a house of trade. He says, my father's house. Jesus is already showing him that he is the Messiah. He's showing them that I am the father's son. And this reminds us that we must take Jesus as he is on his terms and not ours. So what does this mean for us? Uh, we, we don't, most of us don't live with animals. And if you do, it's a dog or a cat or a fish. Uh, some of us live on farms. What, what do we do? Is, is the application just, hey, don't bring your sheep into the foyer? No. I told you this has to do with worship. And Scripture calls us temples, that if we have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are living temples to God. And if Jesus was able to clear and scourge out his Father's temple here on earth, do you not think that he will, if you are not worshiping in a correct manner, that he will not scourge your own heart? What's real worship? Well, the beautiful thing is here in just a couple chapters, Jesus is going to talk with a woman at the well. In John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, he says this, 
I'll, I'll give you some context. I'll start. Oh, yeah. Verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Do you want to be a true worshiper of God? Do you want to be a true worshiper of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? You are called to worship in spirit and in truth. What keeps you from worshiping in spirit and truth? I think man-centeredness and pragmatism. I was reading, studying this week. And, and I think what gets in our way as people who do desire to worship Jesus in spirit and truth is man-centeredness and pragmatism. So what's the dangers of man-centeredness? Well, we begin to worship ourselves. We care too much about what others, and primarily me, thinks. And worship isn't about you. I've heard other pastors do this. I don't think I've ever done it to any of you. But people complain about the music. I didn't like the music that was played today. And I've heard other pastors say, well, it's not for you. Our worship is for God. But worship is more than just singing. Worship is more than just the preaching and teaching of God's word. Worship is more than prayers. Worship is our lives. And who do you live for? Who do you honestly live for? Do you live for yourself or do you live for Christ? May it be that we live for Christ. The danger of pragmatism, pragmatism is do whatever works, right? The danger of pragmatism is whatever works isn't always, always true. There's things that work. I have, even in my office, some books about church growth. And these books are primarily written, How to Draw a Crowd. There's some things that we could do at a Boyd Baptist Church that, friends, we would, we would have to be extending our whole church service. We'd have to have two or three just because we could draw a crowd. But what you win people with is what you win them to. And we want to win people to Christ, and so we will preach Christ. And so what, what we see in pragmatism is, hey, this works, let's do it. This works, let's just do it. It's practical, it works, let's do it. That's not always true. And so when we bow down at the idols of man-sitterness and pragmatism, we teach others that it is okay to worship yourself. But that's not true. Instead, we are commanded to live lives of worship, loving God and loving others. Just like the first and second greatest commandments. What does that look practically like at a Boy Baptist church? What, what, what does worship, true worship, look like for us at a Boy Baptist church? Well, it looks like this. It, it looks like every once in a while, you singing with all your heart a song that you don't really care for because your brother and sister in Christ need that song and love that song. We try to look at all our songs. Actually, not try. We do. We look at all our songs. We look at the lyrics. We say, is it true? Is it 
Christ-centered? Is it praising God? Is it glorifying God? As we look at that, there's some new songs like we sang this morning, and there's some old good songs as well. Now, some people, um, they like to pride themselves in saying, well, we just sing the old songs, and it is good. Yeah, they're good. But Scripture wouldn't say in Psalm 96.1 or Psalm 98.1 or Psalm 149.1, which is almost the very last psalm, to sing a new song to the Lord. You see, Scripture is about worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And not all new songs are good. We understand them. That's why we try not to sing those. But here, here's what we miss out. There's some people who, who actually, they say, the only proper way to sing to the Lord is by just singing psalms. There's some people who do that. Just anything from the Psalter. But they miss out on what we're commanded to do as Christians. That not only are we to talk to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, right? And if they just do the Psalter, if they just sing the psalms, they're going to miss out on what Paul wrote, those Christ hymns of Philippians and Colossians. They're going to miss out on Martin Luther, a mighty fortress is our God. They're going to miss out on Isaac Watts. They're going to miss out on Fanny Crosby. They're going to miss out on modern hymns like the Gettys, In Christ Alone. And if all they do is just sing just the old songs because that's the only good one, they're going to miss out on the Revelation song that we will sing one day. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. You see, we are called to bring to the Lord new songs. And sometimes that means we sing because not only we love God, but we love others. There's a vertical and horizontal relationship as we worship together with one another. Sometimes uh, worshiping, how we worship is, uh, friends, we, we preach through the Bible here. And so guess where we're going to be next week? John chapter 3. And you may not know what verses I'm going to preach on or, who, Lord willing, whoever's preaching. You're not necessarily going to know always the verses. But in preparation for coming and worshiping together, you could read John chapter 3. You could think about that. Maybe ask questions of, okay, what, what do I need to think about this passage? What does it teach me about God? What does it teach me about Christ? What does it teach me about mankind and how I relate to, to other people and, and Jesus and God? And ask those questions and, and maybe, Lord willing, I answer those for you. Or afterwards, you can talk with friends. Worshiping God is not limited just to here. Do, do you worship the Lord in your homes? Do you have Family devotions. I know I've talked with some of you all, and you said, yeah, we had family devotions when our kids were young. We haven't had them in years. Friends, are you zealous? Are you zealous for the worship of God? Because that's how verse 17 ends. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus gives us an example that how we worship matters, and we are to have zeal for the name of God. And that means that in our homes, we cherish and love Jesus. We sing together. We pray together. We read God's word together. 
Friends, when was the last time that you binged a TV show? When was the last time that you binged reading the Bible? Not only how you worship, but who you worship matters. Who you worship really does matter. So what happens is Jesus clears out the temple, and I imagine there's like a stray lamb running behind him and a couple birds flying out and an ox just moving out the door, and Jesus is left standing there with his whip in his hand and crowds, and I mean, there's thousands of people that would have been in here. They're looking at Jesus. And they say, who do you think you are? Why are you doing these things? And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.22, Jews ask for signs and Greeks seek wisdom. They want to know, are you the Messiah? Give us a sign. And most of the time, Jesus never gives signs to people in the gospel. He never gives signs. But here he does. And he says this. He says, here's your sign. Tear down this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Now, the, the Jewish people there, they think he's actually talking about the temple building, the building that was built by Ezra and Zerubbabel back in the day, a, a temple that took 46 years to build back then. And then Herod the Great, about 20 years before Jesus was born, started expanding it and, and having renovations. And it had been 46 years since he had expanded the temple. And it actually would take 63, or actually would take longer than that. It was completed in 63 A.D., this, this building was massive. There was gold all over. It shone so brightly. And one man's going to tear all that down? But they missed the truth. He was going to do something much greater. He said, you kill me, and in three days I'm going to rise from the grave. You see, who you worship matters, not just how you worship. We can go through all the motions of trying to worship the correct way, but who you worship matters. And what Jesus is declaring is this, that Jesus is that temple. He says in Matthew 12, 6, something greater than the temple is actually here. How is Jesus the temple? How is something greater than the temple here? Well, everything that was going on was meant to point to Christ. You see, there was temple bread that they were to sit out. And Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. There was the, these menorahs, these lights, these lamps, and Jesus said, I am the light of the world. There was sheep that were being slaughtered to atone for the people's sin, and Jesus said, behold, I am the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. There was a high priest that could go into the holy of holies, and behold, Jesus is that great high priest. There needed to be atonement for sin, and Jesus' blood would be that atonement. There was prayers, people praying, and Jesus prays on our behalf to the very throne of God. There was a big veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. And Jesus not only approached through the veil, but he tore the veil down for you and I. He is the bridge to God. But not only the bridge to God, he is the very presence of God. As John started off, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. As Colossians 2.9 says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus 
is the very presence of God and was right there before them. And so here's our application, friends. Not only how we worship, but who we worship matters. Do you know Jesus? Do you know the person who lived that perfect life and was the spotless sacrifice on the cross whose blood was shed on the cross just like in that Passover? Who died for your sins so that you might be forgiven? But not just forgiven, he died for your sins and rose again that he might bring you to the very presence of God himself. That's what 1 Peter 3.18 tells us. That the righteous for the unrighteous died to bring you to God. As John 14 verse 6 says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Who you worship matters but not only who or not only how and who but why why you worship matters look at verse 23 through 25 now when he was in jerusalem at the passover feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing but jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he knew him knew himself what was in man what a weird way to end this sermon. What a weird way to end this text of Scripture. You see, Jesus cleared out the temple, and, and most of the people were actually really, really happy that Jesus cleared it out because they were the ones that were being taken advantage of. And so Jesus walks around the rest of that Passover, and he's teaching and probably performing miracles, and people are loving this Jesus guy. We expect nothing else. And so it says in verse 23, many believed in his name. They saw the signs that he was doing, and they, they trusted in Jesus. And isn't that who we're to worship? And yet the text tells us that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. That's a weird way to end this text. What's going on? Well, Jesus calls people to trust in him on the basis of who he is, not on the basis of the test we set before him. They said, perform more miracles, do more signs. We want what we can get from you, Jesus. And this is the lesson that we have at the end of this chapter. Do not use Jesus as a means to an end. Come to Jesus as the end who supplies all your needs. We come to Christ not for what we can get from him, but because of who he is. You can come to Jesus for eternal life. You can come to Jesus for heaven. You can come to Jesus to be saved from hell. You can go to Jesus because that's where your parents are, your grandparents are, your friends are. But that's not coming to Christ. We come to Christ for Christ alone. To know Christ alone. You see, God has provided not only the perfect example of someone who knew how to worship, and who to worship, and why to worship. But he provided a person, a person of Jesus Christ, a person who we can seek to have a real and vital relationship with, the Christ who came as our temple so that we might be eternally in the presence of God. Why didn't Jesus entrust himself to these people 
Will he not entrust himself to you? Well, friends, these people believed in his name for what they could get from Jesus. They believed in his name because of the signs that Jesus shown. Friends, have you come to Christ to know him, to be with him, to worship him? We all know the relationships of some people. You have a relationship with them, and it just seems like they use you all the time. They say, what can I get from this person? They're only kind to you because of what you can offer them. But friends, you can offer Jesus nothing. And Jesus expects you to come empty-handed before him and say, Lord, I have nothing to offer you. I deserve nothing from you. But Jesus, I want you. And in the next several chapters, John's going to show people who are far from God, people who think they have their act together and people who know they don't have their act together. He's going to show us that it is not just rote worship that we must be austere, but we must have a relationship with Jesus himself. Friends, how you worship matters Why you worship matters, but who you worship matters.